be with you all again. I feel like it's been a long time since I've seen some of you. I was sick, and then Katie and I have just come off spring work, not spring break. We were in Roanoke and then had a couple days for a marriage retreat in Evansville and then traveled to Wingo this morning, so I am tired, but I'm glad to be here with you all. No better, no better place that I'd rather be, no other people I'd rather be with. Um, the title of this meditation this evening is, What Does Leviticus Have to Do with Communion? I just, I just, I'm going to try to preach the book of Leviticus in 20 minutes. We'll see how that goes. I just completed reading through the book of Leviticus, and I'm thoroughly convinced that it receives a bad rap. Here's why. It's full of laws. It's full of detailed laws. The reader easily gets bogged down in reading law after law, especially because these laws are culturally and circumstantially somewhat foreign to us. However, What's the purpose of these laws? And it was asking that question that really changed the way I read the book this time around. What is the purpose of all these Levitical laws? Well, the events recorded in Leviticus are preceded by the events recorded at the end of the book of Exodus. There we find Moses receiving instructions on Mount Sinai about the construction of the tabernacle, the place where God was to dwell in the midst of his people. However... Even before he reached the bottom of the mountain, he finds out that the people have already engaged in gross idolatry with the golden calf. So Moses' immediate response is one of anger because he realizes that their sin provokes the wrath of God. But he also realizes that there is a way that sin can be atoned for, and so he offers himself. What kind of unimaginable love is that? God, of course, does not accept his offer, but nonetheless, the need for a substitutionary sacrifice is clearly communicated. Therefore, it ought not to surprise us that when the tabernacle is finally constructed and the cloud symbolizing God's presence settles down on it, the sinfulness on the part of the people remains a continuing problem. How can God, who is holy, dwell in the midst of a people who are not? The entire book of Leviticus is the answer to that question. How can a holy God dwell with the unholy? Well, in order for God to dwell with his people, we see in the first five chapters, sacrifices have to be instituted in order to provide access to the presence of God and to remove the defilement that arises from human sin. And in chapters 1 through 5, we have a description of five basic types of sacrifices, grain offering, burnt offering, and others. But then, that's followed in chapters 6 and 7 by instructions given to the priests on how to present those sacrifices. And then verses, or chapters 8 through 10 talks about the need for the priest to be consecrated in order to perform this very, very solemn task. They also, these priests, had to observe even more rigorous standards for cleanness and separation than did the common people, and those standards are laid out in chapters 21 through 22. In addition, special care is needed to be taken for holy things, and that's described in chapters 23 to 27 and applied to the priests. Also, the people of Israel are addressed, and they're told that they have to separate themselves from uncleanness in order to approach the tabernacle in chapters 11 through 16. And then in in chapters 17 through 20, the people were told, told that gross defilements could not be expected to re- or could be expected to receive very severe penalties. So there you go. 
Leviticus outlined. But I would like to unpack the book of Leviticus tonight with these headings and make application to our observance of the Lord's Supper. In other words, what I want to do is point out three themes in the book of Leviticus, explain them a little bit, apply them to Christ, and apply them to the Lord's Supper, because Christ is the one who fulfills all these types. So first of all, the sacrifices. Here's the first. The sacrifices. In order for God to dwell with us, a sacrifice must take place in order to provide access to God's presence and remove the defilement arising from sin. I already mentioned that the first five chapters lay out five different sacrifices that must be offered. The animals must be without blemish or defect, signifying that God requires perfection in the sacrifice. The worshiper was to place his hand on the head of the animal, signifying his identification with the animal, and the animal dies in his place. The blood of the animal had to be spilled, symbolizing the life of the animal. Sin is a bloody mess. All you had to do is imagine what these priest's robes must have looked like. However, animal sacrifices are insufficient. God must provide the ultimate sacrifice. So here in Leviticus, you have God requiring of the people to bring a sacrifice. Isn't it ironic that God is the one who ultimately has to provide the sacrifice? Here they are, people having to bring sacrifices. And I noticed this trend, especially in Leviticus 5, where if the people can't bring a lamb, God tells them to bring a smaller animal. And if they can't even bring that, or if they can't bring a bull or a goat, bring a lamb. If they can't bring a lamb, bring two turtle doves. He, wants, he is so eager to forgive sin that he's willing to take whatever the people have to offer as long as it's without blemish or defect. But how much more now in the New Covenant, God himself, provides the sacrifice. We don't bring anything. So God is eager to forgive sin, so much so that instead of the worship, ultimately provides the lamb without blemish or defect. Christ is the final offering to which all the animal sacrifices point forward. Let me read you Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, so all that shadow... And now the true form is going to be described by the writer. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, talking about the Day of Atonement. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world. He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And by that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So all those animal sacrifices, I'm not telling you anything new, all those animal sacrifices point forward to the ultimate great sacrifice God giving his own son to be an atonement for our sin. So that's how it applies to Christ. Now, how does that apply to us as we gather around the Lord's table tonight in terms of sacrifices? Well, we don't see this meal as a sacrifice. This meal is no sacrifice. This meal is a reflection of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. 
So rejoice that a sacrifice has been provided by God that removes the defilement caused by our sin and enables him to dwell with us. And this is symbolized by the blood and body of Christ broken once for all. So rejoice in the death of Christ tonight, the ultimate sacrifice. Secondly, the priesthood. The priesthood. The priests had to be given instructions for how to present sacrifices in the book of Leviticus and had to be consecrated in order to do it. They also had to observe even more rigorous standards for cleanliness and separation than did the common people and had to take special care with the holy things. Again, that's in chapter 6 through 10 and 21 through 27. Well, the priests in the Old Testament served as the mediator between God and his sinful people. The priests were given detailed instructions of how to present the sacrifices, what animals were to be accepted, the order and sequence of the events had to be very specifically laid out. Don't forget, one priest lost his two sons because they didn't listen. That's how dead serious God takes these instructions. He had told them. They also had to be set apart, the priests did, by God for this task and were expected to walk humbly, holy, and carefully with their God. Well, these priests needed to offer sacrifices for their own sin, didn't they? They weren't perfect. They were called by God to be separate and holy, but they were not perfect. Therefore, there had to come a great high priest, the priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was consecrated by God. He came and lived in our place, keeping all of God's righteous requirements. He truly was holy and blameless, separate from sinners. So where, so where, so where it could be truly said of him, by those who saw him, we don't find any fault in this man. He was holy, undefiled, he knew no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And the writer to the Hebrews picks this up in chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The priests had to know that. Here I am offering a sacrifice. Maybe they didn't. Maybe some of them did. They knew somehow animal for man. What about man for man? How can an animal take away human sin? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Imagine for a second that the priest, uh, a Old Testament a uh, saint or believing Israelite comes forward to offer his sacrifice, and the priest says, hold on, steps out from behind the altar, comes around and kills himself and sprinkles the blood on the altar. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He came down, and the priest gave himself as the sacrifice. The priest was supposed to deal with sacrifices. Here the priest becomes the sacrifice. Once for all. Now, how does that apply to us as we gather around the table tonight? Well, we are a royal priesthood. We have been made priests to God in Jesus Christ. And we ought to rejoice in our perfect high priest. All the Levitical priests were imperfect and needed to atone for their own sins as well as the sins of the people. However, Christ needed no such atonement. He was born under God's law and ate and drank the will of God. Therefore, because of our trust in Him as our Savior, 
his righteous record is not is now credited to our account and God sees us in him as those who have met his perfect standard of perfection. Now, let me say just a word to those of you other guys who are studying for the ministry along with me. Okay, the priesthood is not a one for all one for one with the pastorate. Okay? But in a sense, guys, you must be exemplary. You need to live a life that's above reproach. You need to live a life that's that's exemplary for the people of God, as we see in the lives of the priests here. They separated themselves unto God, sanctified themselves, consecrated themselves. Doesn't mean you go hide in a cave and live a monastic life. That doesn't that's not what the priests did. They were very much in and around Israelites. They look like Israelites. And so what I mean is in our character, we must strive for that even as we study. So don't let books and, and lectures, as important as all those things are, trump your character. So finally, the people. We looked at the sacrifices, the priesthood. Let's look at the people. The people, that is the Israelites, the common people, had to separate themselves. It wasn't just the priests. It was the common people who had to separate themselves from uncleanness in order to approach the tabernacle. Gross defilements could be expected to receive severe penalties. God's command to his people was to, basically, and this is the theme verse, if you want to shuck Leviticus down to one verse, it's this, be holy because I'm holy. So lest we think that this this only applies to the ethnic people of Israel under the Old Covenant, God reiterates this command to New Covenant Christians through the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 13-19. Listen as I read. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, here's a quote from Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And here's another allusion to Leviticus talking about the Lord Jesus, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So there, the lamb without blemish is compared to the precious blood of, of Christ. As God's people, we're called by God himself to separate ourselves from uncleanness, setting our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and resting in his perfect righteousness live for us, and atoning death died for us, Peter commands us to not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but instead to be holy as God is holy. What does it mean to not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance? It means behaving like you did when you were an unbeliever. That's what it means. Those who are, when I was in my sin as an unbeliever, I was ignorant. I did not know that half the things I did were sin. In fact, 97% of the things I did were sin. 100% if you judge motives which God does. All those things were passions, sinful passions that I was living in, in my former, in my ignorance. And yet God, by His grace, saved me and called me to Himself and therefore calls me to live holy as He is holy, as an obedient child now. He says, you are an obedient child, therefore live like it. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
Notice what he says in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, we call God father. And if you call God father, that should carry some weight in your life. To call God our father is to say that he loves me, he cares for me, he protects me, he watches over me. And to live in such a way that would not please our father to conduct ourselves and conform ourselves, conform ourselves to the passions of our former ignorance is to slap our own father in the face. So if we call on him as father, we must not behave in ways that would put a question mark over such a profession. So how does all this apply to the Lord's Supper tonight? Well, as we gather around the table this evening, we must take our sin dead seriously because God does. Literally. God takes our sin dead seriously. Our sin cost his son his life. Therefore, we need to remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. I don't want to undermine what our pastor just said about coming to the Lord's Supper. It is a sinner's ordinance. But listen carefully to a familiar text that we read often when we come to the Lord's Supper. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, what does that phrase without discerning the body mean? Without discerning the body. Well, it's typically been given two interpretations. One, some hold that it means that it means not understanding that the bread represents the body of Christ and the blood represents the sacrifice of Christ with the result that such people do not act in a Christ-like way. The other view is that these people do not recognize the spiritual reality of what is happening at the Lord's Supper and therefore they're acting in a way that is dishonoring Christ. And I believe that's the correct interpretation. Now, the spiritual reality of what's happening at the Lord's Supper is more than just remembering the body and blood of Christ. That's the main purpose. But it's also an opportunity to recommit ourselves to God, to confess our sins, to acknowledge our shortcomings, and yes, to make some resolves before God of things that we're going to do to live differently. It's a reminder that we have a cross to carry. And so therefore, I would just, I would just admonish you. I don't want to keep anyone from the Lord's Supper tonight. But I want to keep people from the Lord's Supper who are coming to the Lord's Supper with absolutely no repentance in their hearts. With no repentance. That is, you're just really not concerned about your sin. You don't think about your sin that much. It's not bothering you. And in fact, if we were to follow you around or someone were to follow you around, they would say that you're living in the passions of your former ignorance. And I would say that if you're in that condition, you need to deal with that tonight before you come to the Lord's Supper. But I would also say, not only if you're living in the passions of your former ignorance, but that would include if you have unreconciliation with anyone. If there's someone that you're not not striving to live at peace with, I think this is a call as a church to uh, pursue unity. This is, after all, a communion. And that's not only communion with the Lord himself, but that's also communion with each other. So if you have unforgiveness and bitterness and unresolved issues with brothers and sisters in this congregation or with members of your own family, I would recommend you getting that worked out. If you can't go to them immediately, at least resolve it in your heart 
and then go later and commit to the Lord that you will talk to them before you go to bed tonight. So deal with our sin. We need to come repentantly lest we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And that's a sober warning, sober warning that the Lord will discipline those who dishonor the Lord's Supper and therefore it should not be entered into lightly. So I encourage you to come to the Lord's Supper if you are presently at war with the sin in your life. And if you're not presently fighting sin in your life, don't come. So tonight, as you gather around the table, understand that the bread and the blood or the, or the, the grape juice represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ sacrificed for us as, as symbolized in all those Levitical sacrifices in the Old Testament. Also, recognize that we have a great high priest, that we are a royal priesthood, that we need no other mediator between God and man. We can go right to God tonight in the name of Jesus Christ and be welcomed. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Peter says. And if it's coming at his revelation... We got it now. We have grace now. We can rest in knowing that God is a God of grace and mercy to us. And that should lead us to dealing seriously with our sin and discerning the body rightly. So if you're hoping in the blood and righteousness of Christ and walking humbly and repentantly and believingly with your God, I call you in the name of Christ to come and eat of the Lord's Supper tonight. So, there you go. Don't read Leviticus the same way again. If you're in Leviticus right now, which I don't know if anybody is, but don't skip that part of the Bible if you get there. Every day, 27 chapters of substitutionary atonement. Every day, waking up reminded that God has provided a sacrifice for human sin to take away our sin and reconcile us to Him. So let's go rejoice around the table that that final priest has come. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for tonight and for the opportunity to remember the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the coming again, full of grace toward us, full of wrath toward those outside of our great King and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord Jesus, tonight we come to meet with you. Take a seat at the head of the table. We invite you to come by your Spirit because we want to eat with you. That's the great day we're waiting for, to sit down and have that great marriage supper of the Lamb to which all these earthly symbols point to. The great feast when all the people of God, millions upon millions upon millions, how, what's, what a scene that's going to be. How many tables will you have to set up, Lord? For all your redeemed, looking across the table, seeing Chinese and African. Latin American, American, Canadian, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, wearing different garments, reflecting the glory of your diversity. And Lord, we can only imagine. We can only long and anticipate. But Lord, you're coming quickly. And that day is hastening and our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So help us to cast off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. For night is coming when no one can work. So let's work while it's day and pour ourselves out for your glory just as you poured yourself out for us. Not as a way to pay you back, 
Oh, God, let that never be. We want to, we're coming for more grace tonight. We're coming to a giver. We're not coming to offer a sacrifice. We're coming to receive the sacrifice. And so glorify you for your great work for us. We thank you that there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.